As you're settling in, grab your Bibles. Open to the book of Revelation. There's no S on the end. Revelation chapter 2, and we'll pick up where we left off. We're going to pick up at verse 12 and see what the Lord has to say to the third church of seven whom he addresses uh, here at the beginning of the apocalypse, the revelation of the end of human history as we know it, and the beginning of his physical, visible reign, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we open our Bibles, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts. Truly, we need your help because these truths are spiritually discerned. Therefore, we need the Spirit to help us. So help us, Father, not only to hear and listen, but to obey, to put these truths into practice so that we could be blessed and be a blessing to others. In Christ's name, amen. Well, some cities have better reputations than others, especially when it comes to morality. Now, which would you suppose would offer a more faith-friendly environment? Las Vegas, Nevada, or Little Rock, Arkansas? You don't need to answer. You can just do this in your own mind. Uh, Where might Christians have an easier time sharing the gospel and biblical uh, commands? In San Francisco or Colorado Springs? I don't know. Uh, How about Sonoma County or a new couple I met today from Shenandoah, Iowa? I think it would be easier in Iowa. Now, uh, serving the Lord... While you're at Bible college on a campus there, let's say, in, um, down in uh, Temecula, down there where the Calvary Chapel Bible College is, beautiful place, surrounded by Christians and uh, Christian teaching, or living in the Bible Belt and doing God's business there, it's a lot less strenuous, I would think, than serving the Lord in an environment hostile to the gospel, and we see uh, that that is going to be the subject of this morning's uh, letter to the church at a place called Pergamum. So this morning, our Lord Jesus addresses a Christian congregation that had to tough it out in an environment that was really hostile and opposed to God in a big way. The Lord Jesus calls that place the epicenter of evil. And so it's downtown Pergamum that apparently uh, is known as their open rebellion to God and the things of God, just kind of a twisted, um, godless spirituality, evil masquerading there as good. And it'll put a lot of stress and strain on the Christian congregation that met there. Jesus is going to commend this church by and large, but there were some in the congregation that began to cave. With all of that outward precious pressure, that's the word I was looking for, uh, it it is hard to make a stand for the truth. Now, um, the outline that we're following has been given to us in verse 19 of chapter 1 for the entire book. And just to give those who weren't with us last week some context where we are in the book of Revelation, uh, the Lord says, John, write the things that you've seen. And, and, and the, that, that is the vision of Christ in Revelation chapter 1. And then he says, uh, and write the things that are now. And that would be the letters to the churches. They represent the church age from the day of Pentecost when the church was born until the day the Lord comes for the church. All throughout church history, they represent, they are physical locations, historical churches, but they also prophetically uh, represent the good and the bad, the strengths and the weaknesses of every church that will have ever existed. And so that is the subject of chapters two and three, the things that are now. And then starting in chapter four, Jesus says, then I want to show you what things come after. 
after the church is no longer an entity on this earth, then the judgment comes from the Lord. And then we know chapters 4 through 22 of Revelation are the things of Christ's judgment, his second coming, and his uh, administration where he rules and reigns in his kingdom. And so we find ourselves today still in chapter 2, the things which are now the, the existence of the church, and we are part of that church as individual believers. Thank you for that slide. And, and so the first congregation we saw was back uh, at Ephesus. That was letter number one, and they had, uh, they had their heads right. They were a Bible-centered church, a Bible-believing church, but their hearts were empty. The, their love for the Lord was waning, they prided themselves in, in sound doctrine, but really the relationship with the Lord was just kind of fizzled out. And, and then 40 miles north of them was the church of Smyrna. And they also were a Bible-believing church, but they needed to continue to persevere because they were under bitter persecution. Interesting that the names of the church are prophetic as well, because, you know, chapter one, it says the word of this prophecy. The letters to the churches are prophetic as well. So even their names tell you something about them. Ephesus, it means to relax or to let go. Now they let go of their first love. Smyrna means bitter and they represent the church that is under persecution and have a bitter experience with that. Now, Pergamum is what we're going to look at this morning. 50 miles north of that fellowship and congregation, you will find the third congregation that the Lord addresses in Pergamum. As I said, and Pergamum means objectionable marriage, married to the wrong thing. That's what it means. And so it represents a compromised church that through satanic opposition and pressure, they have uh, given way to a false theology and immoral living. Not all of them. Not all of them. He addresses those in the congregation who have caved in and compromised and so we're going to take a look at that starting at verse 12. Here's the letter. You've got the context. Now let's hear what the, the word of the Lord is to them and to us. Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there in the church who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. So, an intriguing, fascinating letter in many regards. We're going to pause there and consider this letter. They have an easy-to-follow pattern, don't they? And we've been using that to, for our time, our discussion about these texts. First, of course, there's the city and the context. There's always a greeting. There's always a con commendation, something that they're doing right, that the Lord gives them an accolade about. And then there's a correction. 
And then there's always a final blessing or commitment by the Lord, uh, a promise that those who take heed to his word would be blessed. And so that's just really how they all the letters go. And we're going to take a look in that order. Uh, first, the Lord greets the church in Pergamum. Uh, another incredibly difficult place for Christians to live. Now, actually, the city, if you're interested, is the capital city. It's the Washington, D.C. of Asia Minor. And it's very distinguished, very affluent, very beautiful. And so it's the political hub for Asia Minor. A lot of political corrupt power going on there. And they prided themselves on their advanced knowledge. There are a lot of schools there and universities. In fact, one of the world's largest libraries existed there in Pergamum, 200,000 scrolls. In fact, our word for parchment comes from Pergamum, where they sort of invented the beginning of paper there with their scrolls in their library. They had an amphitheater there. That, that could uh, hold 20,000 people. Now, they, they were on the cutting edge of knowledge, this city. And you know what the Apostle Paul said about that? 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 2. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so there's nothing uh, more dangerous uh, to one's character than knowledge that isn't grounded in humility and in the scriptures. And, and so that's kind of what's going on there. Uh, they had ginormous, elaborate temples to the Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. Man, they were on every corner, and they were just beautiful. And, and uh, temples to Athena, to Zeus, to Dionysus, and, of course, a huge one for Caesar worship, as well as Smyrna had one as well, I should say. And theirs was even more grand. And so now, as you remember from last week, it is a capital offense to be a Christian who will not confess Caesar as Lord. You could not buy, you could not sell, you could not work, you couldn't live unless you confess that once a year in the presence of officials appointed by Rome and handed you a signed certificate by which you could live like a passport. You didn't say the magic word, Caesar's Lord, and pinch the incense and worship him as your God, then you were denied the certificate and you had to uh, make your way in this life in poverty and under great uh, duress. Now, uh, this city, the Lord says, it's, verse 13, it's the city where Satan has his throne. Now, how would you like that on your business card? You know, <laughs> I'm from Sonoma County, the place where Satan has his throne, you know, or, uh, you know, on your license plate, you know, like New Hampshire, live free or die, or you, California, uh, the place where Satan has his throne. You know, it, it doesn't sound like a place you would want to be. Uh, amen? Now, why did Jesus use this word picture, do you think? Well, commentators have a couple views, at least for the association. Uh, first of all, Zeus had this tremendous altar, but it didn't look like an altar. It looked like a throne, and so it was very famous. It was gigantic. It was something that would take your breath away when you looked at it. And the world would come and they would recognize this is not just the place where you would worship Zeus, who, by the way, is the father of all the gods. It was the meeting place for all kinds of spiritual uh, idolatry and worship of, of uh, gods and goddesses and these kinds of things. And so it, it was there and um, you know, we roll our eyes at such things. We see a shrine and we roll our eyes. There's an offering. You know, I lived four years in Japan and I never really, you know, I see a shrine and there's an offering on the shrine to the god or goddess. The Bible says they, they're not just nothing. 
that it says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 20 that sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. So while you don't see anything, and Christians know better, but uh, there is spiritual, invisible activity going on when other things are worshipped, and that's just the way it is. And so in one regard, with that throne there and everybody, all that activity going on in downtown Pergamon, uh, that's probably the word association. Or it could be this horrific shrine to Asclepius, Now, if you've had to study these things, you'll remember that Asclepius was the god of healing, and he was fashioned in the image of a serpent, of a snake. And here in this huge temple, all people who were sick from all over Asia Minor would make a pilgrimage to that temple, wanting to lie down in the temple where non-poisonous snakes were given free reign to slither about. Now, if you've got a thing about snakes, this ought to really send you running, all right? Because they would lie down, sometimes spend the night, and they're hoping and praying to Asclepius that those snakes would come in contact with them, and when they did, they would be healed. Now, this, of course, serpents and the Christians there at Pergamon, would right away associate that with Satan because in the Bible, uh, he is often described as the serpent in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. And so there's the word association there, but more than that is the meaning. What does it mean? What is Jesus saying when he says, man, you live in a place where Satan has his throne, And then in verse 13b, it says where Satan lives. He likes to hang out there. It's like a center. Well, first of all, it's saying a lot. Satan is not the opposite of God. He's an angelic being who corrupted himself with pride. He is a created thing that had a beginning. He is not the opposite of God. He cannot be everywhere at once. He's not omnipresent, as the term goes. To say that there's a place on earth that he likes to hang out is saying a lot because he can't hang out everywhere at once. But he chose where? A a stone's throw from their little congregation is where Satan himself has set up his manufacturing plant. Yikes. I would not want to start a little church next door to the devil. Amen? (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) Well, let's try to understand what it means. Uh, uh, The Bible teaches this in Ephesians chapter 6. Our struggle is not against people that you see. It's about, rather, uh, rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world against spiritual forces of evil and heavenly realms. So it's not Zeus's altar and his priest or Asclepius and the temple there or the corrupt politicians who were there at the Capitol that we're talking about. The throne of Satan is talking about heavenly powers of spiritual forces of evil in this dark world. They gravitated there. So what the Bible teaches is that there are certain groups or institutions or organizations or cities or universities that promote the devil's godless agenda that kind of is the well from which all things vile and terrible are spewn and that through this region of the world, through all of that going on there, kind of uh, culminating there in downtown Pergamon, the rest of all of Asia Minor was polluted by this kind of thinking. And so, you know, uh, if you're thinking, I wonder where his throne is today. Well, where are universities that teach humanism? Humanism just means man is the center, God is nowhere. It's all about us. When you indoctrinate children or young people 
that the center of the universe is you, and there is no God, and you call the shots, and you created yourself and your own destiny, that's a throne. How about a place like Hollywood that glamorizes everything that God hates? Sexual immorality, gratuitous violence, uh, the Lord's name in vain. Uh, to make something that God hates attractive and glorifies something that God says I will condemn is, is a throne. From that throne is coming a coercion to do the wrong thing. And so uh, cities, when you say the name, the first thing you think of is immor immorality or corruption or violence or false spirituality or their influence. Really, the idea is, is, is that not only are they off spiritually, but they are having a big impact. And that would be kind of a way to think about it. Now, the greeting, he says, is interesting to the Christians who have the unenviable task of living uh, with their next door neighbor as Satan and his uh, putrid manufacturing plant from hell. Um, did, did I describe that okay to you there? <laughs> did, you, did you get how I feel about it? <laughs> well, the Lord introduces himself with a great one-liner. He says, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, Hello, friends in Pergamum. It's me, the one with the executioner's sword in hand, the double-edged one, with two edges, sharp, wielded for action. Now, why would Jesus introduce himself like that? Well, I think he's saying, I'm well aware of your evil-soaked environment, and please remember who has the true and real power and authority. First John chapter 4 and verse 4, one of my favorite all-time verses. You, dear children, are from God. You have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. So he's saying, I, I know where you're at. I know that your evil surroundings make it so hard for day and night. You're bombarded with images and theologies and philosophies and values that make you want to cave in. He says, but don't forget who's got the power. I've conquered that world. I'm greater than evil. And by the Holy Spirit, I've given you that power. You share in what Peter calls, Second Peter chapter 1. He says, we share in the divine power so that we might escape the corruption that is in the world. You see? And so he introduces himself and he says, I know exactly where you're at. Wow. Can you believe? I mean, a stone's throw from your little congregation is, is a place that is influencing the entire world in dark ways. But you guys are standing strong, and partly because of his power. You'll notice in the Gospels with me that Jesus never really broke a sweat, did he, when he was doing miraculous things? When he went after the devil with two hands tied behind his back. Matthew chapter 4, fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he went after him. And the devil went after him as well and tempted him three times. And what did he do? The sword of his mouth, my word, my word, my word. Three temptations, three answers, all the word of God. Didn't break a sweat you don't see him thumping physically anybody. When a storm is coming to drown the disciples, he doesn't seem to be that upset. He speaks the sword, the power of the voice of the one who created all things, God Almighty speaking. When he confronted the man who is obviously demon-possessed, Crazy, gashing himself with rocks. Even chains in the tombs couldn't bind him. He confronted that man, and he wanted everybody to know what was going on inside this tormented man. And he said, who, who are you? And he said, I am legion, for we are many. 
There was a legion, a host of demons that possessed that man. And you did not see Jesus quaking with fear or, or, or sweating up a storm. You just see him say, go. And 2,000 swine on a hill were in, 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 infested, is the right word? They, they were possessed by those devils, and the, and the pigs rushed down into the sea of Galilee. So, you know, we see Jesus. He's powerful. He's with us. And he says, just, I know where you live. I know the pressure. But, you know, remember me and the Holy Spirit in you and the word of God on your laps and in your hearts. Hello, it'll work. Even if the devil is one of your tenants in your house which I don't recommend, but. So these beleagued, beleaguered believers, I should have used a different word. How about these harassed believers receive a wonderful commendation overall? Here's what he's saying there. Wow, even with the devil himself breathing down your neck, you've maintained your Christian identity. You haven't renounced your faith in me. Even in the face of Antipas, uh, one of my heroes, he says there, my faithful witness was martyred among you. Now, he's, here's what he's saying. Uh, nobody knows who Antipas is except a couple lines from church history. He was one of the elders in the church, and they came in and they ripped him out of the church, took him downtown, and lit him on fire. And the Lord says, wow, that man, my faithful witness one of my heroes. And he says, even when they did that, you're still walking around calling yourself a Christian. He says, wow, that, thank you. In, in that, that kind of uh, uh, stress for you to maintain your allegiance to me is something that he wants to commend. The word antipas means against all. And everybody was against him. And he stood strong. He was a faithful witness. Kind of reminds me of Martin Luther hauled in before the Catholic tribunals, given a last chance to recant of his born-again Christian theology before they killed him. And they said, don't you realize the whole world is against you? Recant. And he said these immortal words, here I stand, I can do no other my heart and conscience captive to the word of God. May God help me. That's a famous quote that has lived for centuries. The powers of hell cannot overcome the church or the Christian who makes up the church as the Lord told us in Matthew chapter 16. And so this kind of spiritual fortitude was alive and well in this church at Pergamum. And Jesus is impressed but in verses 14 and 15, we move to the time for correction. But he says, I do have a few problems with your congregation, and they're serious ones. And he names two heresies. Two names are given here, but they're related. Let me paraphrase here for you. There are some in your church who we'll call Balaamites, following in Balaam's footsteps from the Old Testament, enticing people into sin and sexual immorality. Similarly, you also put up with the Nicolaitans in the congregation spreading their practices. You need to sort this out or I will come and sort it out for you. Now, I think that's a rather good paraphrase of what's going on there. Let's take a look at both of these very related uh, Heresies. A heresy is something that is off biblically, all right? So first of all, the teaching of Balaam. He says, you've got people in there who are teaching the principle that Balaam taught. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, let's go back and look at that story in Numbers 22 through 25. I'll just sum it up for you. You'll remember the king of Moab, uh, Balak, he sees Israel coming, barreling through the desert on their way to the promised land, but he's in between them and the promised land. Now, he kind of sees a pattern going when, when other countries didn't yield. 
All Israel asked for was yield to us. Let us pass through. We won't drink your water. We won't eat your food. Just let us pass through. We don't mean you any harm. But they aggressed Israel. And every nation that aggressed Israel were bowled over. Now, King of Moab sees the connection. And he, he decides, i got to put a curse on them. So he goes to the local soothsayer or uh, psychic or witch doctor, whatever you want to call this person. He's a false prophet, a seer. And he says, I'm going to hire you. I'm going to make you a rich man because I know you got power. I need you to, to speak a curse on these people, and I'll make you so wealthy. And so Balaam says, okay, let me get into a position where I can see them so I can get, you know, here we go. And he opens his mouth, and out comes a blessing to Israel. Well, the king is not very happy. <laughs> he says, you get a second chance. He says, okay, give me a second chance. He does it again. He looks to the east this time. Out comes a blessing again. They're unstoppable. Their God is strong. He is for them. You guys are doomed. The king is like, I'm hiring you. I'm paying you. Number three, he tries it again. Number four, he tries it again. And this time, the king says, you know what? I'm putting a stop payment on that check. You are not getting paid. You were dreaming about a palace and, and vacations all over the world. Ain't going to happen because I asked you to do something and you didn't deliver. He says, well, wait a second. You can't stop them and their God when they're right with their God because that's the power. But there is a way to stop them. Go within them and have them corrupt their walk with him. Get them to disconnect through immorality and sin and idolatry. Get them to, to, to disconnect from the intimacy that is making them so successful and he'll take care of it. Let's use the holiness of God against them. Trip them up, entice them to live in an unholy, ungodly way, and then we'll sit back and watch Yahweh deal with them. And boy, so he, he said, here's my teaching, and this is how it's connected. Here's my advice, O king. Have the Moabite pretty girls, the prostitute shrine women, have them invite the boys to a big party, a holiday, when you guys don't celebrate, but you know it's a holiday. Who doesn't like holidays? And spread the table with gorgeous food that you've offered up to your pagan gods. Good food, good time, decorations, pretty women, and get them drunk. And then have them do their work of prostitution. And the men came, and they were enticed by Balaam's teaching to do what God hates and be immoral. And as they were, 24,000 of them fell dead. God brought a plague. All the soldiers involved put to death on top of the 24,000. Wives didn't have husbands anymore. Children didn't have their dads. The whole congregation of Israel was delayed, sidetracked. They weren't going forward to the promised land. The king was happy. Balaam was paid. And the devil from his throne was smiling. Mission accomplished because of Balaam's advice slash teaching. And Jesus says, it's got into the church. Now, what does he mean by it's in the church? Well, here's a quote. These Balaam, Balaam's teaching is spiritual sounding deceptions that entice Christians into embracing sinful ideas or causing them to sin. People who through warped thinking and smooth talking convince believers that something evil is really something good and acceptable. These are Balaamites today, modern people, uh, and Nicolaitans, plain and simple. Uh, teaching that makes me covet for more things is something Balaam loved. He loved money. And so if you can get the gospel to help you 
to covet for things that you lust after, so you make prosperity part of the message, then you're a Balaamite. Because the message is not love God, believe in Jesus, and get financial gain. First Timothy chapter 6 calls that warped thinking. Plain and simple. That if you think godliness is a way to financial gain, he calls it perverted and warped. But if you put it into the message, Christians don't want to do the wrong thing. They want to do the right thing. So the error of Balaam's teaching is to teach Christians through the scriptures to do something that's wrong. So they think they're obeying God and they're actually sinning. That's the doctrine. Now, on the other hand, sexual immorality, it would be to come in and to cheapen grace and to show in the scriptures that something that God says is sexually immoral is not. It's actually okay. That is also a very prevalent way for this doctrine to get into the church. You know, is porn really that bad? Come on. You know, five out of ten Christian men admit that they, they do porn. Is it really that bad? It's just the way we are. That's Balaam's voice. That you just, for, you just ask for forgiveness, and it's cool. You know, it's just biology. I'm sleeping with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. How else, everybody in the whole world, how else will we know that intimacy? Do you expect that we just trust God, that he brings the right person, and he's factored all that in already, and that everything on that level will work because it's God's will and plan? Yeah, <laughs> we do. We actually believe that. And there are people, even though they are mocked and ridiculed to death, my own kids, married now, Zach and Caitlin, they were very open when their non-Christian friends ask them all the time about things like that, or why aren't you living together? Well, we're Christians. Oh, you've never, no. We're waiting until we're married. And after we say, I do, then we go on a honeymoon. We don't take our honeymoon first and then get married. That's just not the way we do things. Well, people just roll their eyes. The doctrine of Balaam says, come on, backward. This is the 21st century. What's all this intolerance and hatred and fear? Let us take something that is evil and tell you it's okay from the pulpit. Balaam's teaching. It has split the Methodist denomination. It has split, split the Episcopalian denomination. It has split the Presbyterians. It has split the Lutherans. They're in shambles because Balaam came in and said, you know what? Even though there are seven passages that clearly make it plain and simple what, uh, regarding human sexuality, that God intended sex to be expressed in one way, husband and wife, the end of the story. That's it. Any sex outside of that is called fornication. Any teaching that says, oh, come on, 21st century man, no, you can have sex over here outside of husband and wife. Doctrine of Balaam. And then cause for the Lord to come and have to straighten that out. So that's just a modern day thing. Let me do say this. The ferocious wild animals in the desert couldn't stop Israel. The, 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 the terrible wastelands of the Sinai wilderness didn't stop them. The Red Sea had to open up for them. The Jordan at flood stage levels had to split. The king of Bashan and Sihon, Og, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Egyptians, the, the pharaohs, 600 chariots from the pharaoh. None of them could do a thing to stop Israel. The walls of Jericho, down. It didn't matter, did it? One thing, and one thing only, destroyed them. 
unfaithfulness to their God. Destroyed them and took the chosen people out of the chosen land for 2,000 years. They didn't even have their own country. Taken away. Why? Unfaithfulness and the teaching of Balaam to offer yourself to other gods and do things your own way, the world's way. Now he says in verse 16, repent. A sharp contrast. The word just means change your mind. Do a U-turn in your thinking. So he's really speaking to passive leaders who know about it and letting it go or those who are actually teaching those kinds of things and those who are actually buying it and doing it. And he's saying, listen, uh, if you don't fix it, I'm going to come. If you have ears, listen up. You know, what a fitting response. I'm going to come and decree uh, consequences for that because the wages of sin is death and it just never works out. So the last point here, the commitment of the Lord to what he has in store for faithfulness. Uh, very two beautiful things. You know, things are waiting for us on top of heaven and eternal life and reigning and ruling with Christ and his kingdom. There are things about that place that we find waiting for us, and two of them are listed here. That should make you very excited. Here's a paraphrase of verse 17. Overcomers will get the hidden manna, the secret nourishment that brings eternal life. I will also present to them a white stone with a new name written on it, private personal name of affection, which no one else is privy to. Okay, so first thing, he always says to him who overcomes, and I say this every time because I don't want you to get the wrong understanding. Um, God never puts the onus or the responsibility on us to overcome, to obtain eternal life or salvation. Rather, it's those who obtain salvation by simply trusting Jesus as our Savior who are called the overcomers. First uh, John chapter 5 and verse 14. For everyone, everyone, born of God, overcomes the world. Period. So uh, don't sit there and wonder, am I one of the overcomers? You could sit there and wonder, am I, I, I going to finish well? But you are going to overcome and you will see his face because when God is born again inside of you by his spirit, that's, that's your destiny. He says, you who are born again overcome the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world. Even our faith, it means your trust in Jesus, is what will destine you to be an overcomer. Now, to the two things and then I close. The hidden manna. In Hebrew, the word manna means, what is it? All right? And you'll remember, they were low on supplies, making their way to the promised land. They needed food, and God said, don't worry about it. I've got bread from heaven, and every morning, except on the Sabbath, you will wake up, and you will find it just collected, and eat as much as you want. And they did. Well, the Lord Jesus answers the question, what is it? In John chapter 6, he said, that was a picture of me on the bread of heaven. It was a picture. If they were having communion in the desert, that is my body that I've given for the life of the world, he said in John chapter 6. The cup, the cup for communion was the rock that was struck with Moses' staff and it bleeds the water that gives them life. So you've got the bleeding rock the rock is Christ. You've got the cup that gives us life and the bread right there in John chapter 6. It says that Jesus gives you the fullness of life, eternal life that can never be taken away from you. What's cool about it is that it says it's hidden. I'm going to give you the hidden manna. That means this. How privileged are you that what the world can't see because of their willful, obstinate unbelief, you see. It's hidden to the whole world. Do you know how many thousands of people are in, are in Sonoma County that don't see the simple gospel, the manna, that if a man eats, he will live forever. Death will not harm you. You will go on for life. The second death will have no harm over you. 
eternal life, eternal riches, eternal honor, reigning and ruling with Jesus Christ, co-heirs with the Son of God, and no one sees it. It's hidden. There are princes and kings and wealthy entrepreneurs and scientists and philosophers who are famous. And the Bible says in that last day, the great and the small alike will stand before God, and they didn't see it. We saw it. We saw clues, we followed the clues, and we ate. And we live. And we're raised from the dead, impervious to destruction in a new body that we'll live forever and ever in. And he says, you guys, when you see me, that you will fully be nourished in this eternal life will come to its culmination when you see me. The last thing there, he says, you get a white stone with a new name, which will be our little secret. Let's talk about this, because a white stone in ancient times had several associations, and all four associations jive with the gospel. Number one, back in those days, when you gave somebody an invitation to a wealthy banquet, let's say something like a royal banquet or wedding, you would give them an invitation on a white stone with their name on it. And that was a really cool thing to, to, to have. Secondly, it was a sign of friendship. So when you wanted to have a friendship or a covenant with somebody special, you guys, there was a white stone involved. Uh, a sign of acquittal in a court case. So if all charges were dropped, you would get as proof that you could carry on your person a white stone with your name on it. And then if somebody said, hey, what about those charges? You bring out the white stone and say, cleared of all charges. You see? And so... In reality, all of these things are true, whichever one. The one I really like is, and, and this is from history. You can go and read it for yourself. The gold medal winners at the Olympics would get a white stone with their name, and it was recognizable as they won. They were best in the world at something. Then it was up to the public to kind of maintain their lifestyle. For the rest of their life, they had, let's put it this way, they had a Visa card without limitation. <laughs> and they could use that wherever, whenever they wanted to, all over the Roman Empire, for life. Lodging, owning, feeding, food, entertainment, anything. They took out the white stone and said, I'm paid for. Well, in many ways, that's the gospel. When you get to heaven. There's no more punching clocks, my friend. The, the curse of having to eke out a living is done. As in this life, not fully realized, the Lord says, look to me. I'm the one taking care of you. Even though we have to work, we will not be working in the same sense in the life to come. And now, what's up with the new name that only you and the Lord know? Well, our parents did their best, didn't they, to name their little bundle of joy. You know, they scoured through baby book na names there and um, Bible names. You know, we picked a few Bible names, all three of ours. Jordan, for where God did a miracle. Zach means God remembers. And Peter. <laughs> that was surprising. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sorry. PJ's, uh, yeah, and Peter. And I remember the story that says after he denied the Lord that he came back and strengthened his brothers. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> well, you know, we did our best naming our kids. My parents were driving through Darien, Connecticut, and my mother was pregnant with my brother, Darien. <laughs> I don't need to finish how that story goes. <laughs> my parents were in show business. Uh, they were on Broadway. My mother was an acrobat, and my father was a jazz guitarist. And uh, her stage name was Ronnie Ross, and therefore me. Now, I looked up what my name means, and my name is very significant. It means from the peninsula. 
Now, I know you might want to be beloved of God and God's grace and kingly or strong, but you know what? You don't know anything until you're from the peninsula, all right? <laughs> now, Jesus says, I gave you birth. You were my idea. I've got a name for you that fits you, and it's my affectionate name. Now, my parents, interestingly, never used their first names ever, only their pet names. My mom was Bertie, and my father was Prez. Never once ever heard them utter their names, Joe or Ronnie, ever, to each other, right? One day, there was a fellow from my dad's work, and he came over, and he's in the house, and he hears my dad call my mom Bertie. Bertie this, Bertie that. And then he turned around to my mom, and the, the room was packed, and he said, hey, Bertie. And all of us went, <gasps> you don't, that's not right. <laughs> that's dad's name for mom. Nobody calls her Bertie, unless you're her husband, you see? And this is the idea that when you get your name, it's between you and him. And that's the name that he will call you by, his intention. I won't be any longer knucklehead or dumbbell <laughs> or stupid or you can't do it right or you'll never amount to anything. All of those names will go away. And then you will find out in such a wonderful, defining moment, when you get that name, you're going to go, yes, that is it. That's who I am. You're going to know it. It's going to explain everything to you. And it's not something, well, I would want to run around and tell everybody, oh, here's my name, you know. But, you know, those dumb temptations will be removed from you and me, <laughs> thankfully. And so we look forward to that. Let me close with my paraphrase of the letter. Here we go. Dear church, you live in a real demonic and spiritual dark city, but remember, I have the greater power, and I've given that to you. Thank you for standing with me in spite of that kind of pressure all around you. Now watch out for those in your ranks who are abusing grace and advocating ungodly practices and lifestyles. Do something about it, or I'll have to deal with them. Remember the privilege of life in me, the privilege hidden from the world. Remember you belong to me. Remember you've been acquitted of all wrong. You're invited to my royal table as friends. You'll be taken care of now by me. And when you hear me speak your new name, everything will make perfect sense. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful word, the motivation, even the corrections. And let your Holy Spirit work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.